good morning, First Baptist. What a wonderful morning this morning we had, and what a lovely way to start. Scripture reading and prayer, it all goes hand in hand, for we are in the Lord's house. We shall do the Lord's business. So would you join with me as I just call upon the Lord one more time in prayer uh, as we get started in, in our message for today. Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning wanting once again for the Holy Spirit to rain down on us. Lord, I pray that right now, please cause me to decrease as you increase all the more. As your word comes forward, Lord, let it land upon the hearts of your people. And Father, may it yield a fruit, not 10, not 50, but a hundredfold. And Lord, may you bring many to glory. Father, I pray and I ask for your blessings in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the Moorhead house, there is something that we tend to do when all of my boys get together. I have three sons, and they remind me at times, one, how old I am, and invariably, because they're all sports fans, they will somehow move the conversation to sports. And of course, then you'll get into conversations of things like, who is the greatest? Who's the greatest basketball player? Who's the greatest football player? Dad, back when you were probably ancient times, did they even play sports and stuff like that? But we, we have our differences. I might say that I believe Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. Only to have, as, as, as we get, as we get uh, con, uh, confirmations, others would say that in my household as well. LeBron James is now the greatest of all times. Maybe Kobe Bryant was the greatest. And then it may turn to something where, well, is it football or basketball? Which one is the best sport? Or maybe baseball or soccer. And so decisions and choices have to be made. And those things could end well, and everybody will eat that night, or not. I think in our congregation, if we had a show of hands, that a number of questions could easily come off and we would chuckle over. Should carpet be green or is red a better color? Is it better to meet on a sunny day or a cloudy day? Do you prefer to have the windows half open or closed all the way? And you can keep going on and on. And again, we would chuckle and we would find that nothing too bad. But if the subjects change, if we start talking about different things, if the conversation happens to turn to whose wife is a better cook, some might chuckle and some might say, I don't think 
I might like the way you said what you just said. And if we start to turn that into conversations about just about anything today, ranging from healthcare to politics to environments to wars to just about anything, we would find it may not be so filled with chuckles and we may find some fissure cracks that start to seep into even our congregation. And so with that kind of being the air of today, where folks are wrestling even today to keep unity within the church body, unity within the homes, it's so appropriate that we come to this passage today from Philippians that Paul is concerned about the same thing only on steroids. Because Paul is concerned about his church that he planted that is beginning to show signs that something is amiss. And it's so important to Paul that he writes them a letter. And we're going to look at that letter today. And the importance is emphasized even as we get into it from where that letter is written. This is one of Paul's prison letters. For those of you who don't know, a prison letter is a letter you write while you're in prison. And so when some would be thinking of so many different things, it's appropriate that this subject deals with Paul because we see someone who, while in prison and should be concerned about their very lives, are more concerned about what's going on hundreds of miles away from him with the church and their unity. We pray we learn lessons from how Paul encourages them and how Paul helps encourage and teaches us. So if you have your Bibles, please, we're going to be coming out of Philippians chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 1. And out of chapter 1, we'll move over into chapter 2. So if you get there, I'll start to read as we come out of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And it reads, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We're going to pause there for a second. Because today, church, I want to come to you asking the question, as Paul was answered, when we come to all of these kind of questions that could divide the church, 
we're left with trying to understand how do we then maintain the unity? What behaviors, this is important to Paul as he's going to use this image of citizenship, what behaviors are becoming and are expected of a kingdom citizen? And the big question is, how do we then cultivate this unity to thrive in our church? And if you're taking notes then, the first point is we stand united against outside opposition. We stand united against outside opposition. To walk worthy of the Lord, that was Paul's major goal. And throughout the whole ordeal, he's struggling to be able to help them understand what it means to be together, to be unified, to protect the gospel, how to exalt Christ in his body. It means so much to Paul that this unity, that this, this together for Christ be central that even in this epistle, Paul will later reveal that his deepest passion is to know Christ so intimately so that by any means possible, he may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants the Philippians to walk the walk with him that would put sacrifice above convenience. And he starts with this forceful word, only. When you see that in your passage, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul's intention of using this word only isn't that he's trying to narrow in or is, isn't that this is the only possible way or that it's just a filler word. When Paul uses this word, the essence of it is this thing only. This one thing, only do I want you. I've, 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 I've greeted you. I've kind of set up the things that are going on. But only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wants them to focus like he wants us to focus on the importance and the priority of the gospel. It's the only command here. It's an imperative as he moves into this, that says, let your manner of life, only let your manner of life, Paul's directing them that their manner of life matters and they need to do something with it. But he chooses a term that isn't the same as he usually uses for walk of life. Usually when Paul says something about how we should live, he would say walk in this manner like he does in Romans 13. In verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness. Or in Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But here he uses a term that more symbolizes a state of affairs, a citizenship. Paul is precisely using a term that they would understand. In fact, the word that he uses for let your manner of life, that's one word in the Greek. 
And that word is where we get our word politic. Paul is talking to the Philippian church which he founded. Philippi is a Roman colony that treasures that they are Roman citizens. That is their greatest pride, that they are Roman citizens, because at that time it meant a lot to be a Roman citizen. Paul even got envy from one of his jailers that he was a Roman citizen by birth. So here you have a group that understands when Paul uses this word, let your manner of life be worthy, he's saying that the citizenship that you cherish should be likewise the same kind of citizenship that you have in the kingdom. And just like the same things that you do in order to honor the state, to take pride and participation in the state, should be the same way in which you live out your devoted life to a king and a kingdom. And so Paul gives this sense of urgency that you live this heavenly citizenship, as you'll say in chapter 3, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, live a manner of life worthy of this citizenship. But what does he mean by worthy? Worthy of citizenship. Well, Paul is going to express this in other ways. We've seen this term worthy come up before. And he uses it in manners like in Thessalonica, in the Thessalonians, in the, the church of Thessalonica, when he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 12 through 14, Paul commends the Thessalonians and he says, and I thank God for their acceptance of God's word by them as truth from God. He said that they were worthy, and the term he uses for accepting them is that they were worthy. He praises God because they were able to receive the word of God, not as men being preached to, but as the words of God coming from their lips. And so one of the ways that we see Paul using worthy has to do with how we accept the word of God. Do we accept the word of God and do we obey the word of God? But he also uses it in Colossians and Ephesians when he talks about bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened by God for patience and endurance and long suffering, exhibiting the qualities of humility and gentleness, long suffering, love, and unity. When Paul is talking about this worthy life, these are the elements that he's expressing. So when he uses the term live in accordance with this, this means, this worthiness, he is meaning that we live according to a standard. And then what standard is that? Well, he goes on and says, according to the standard of the gospel of Christ. So we're to live a standard life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And the way that we know, then, what does he mean by the gospel of Christ? I know many of us will quote back, well, the gospel is the good news of Christ. We know that it is the uh, humiliation of Christ, and we will talk about that in a bit. The way in which Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. That essence of the good news is what we understand about the gospel. But Paul is going a little bit further in what he is rendering the gospel here. And that has to do with the exaltation and the humiliation of Christ. And we'll talk about that as he goes on to that in, in um, uh, chapter 2 when we talk about verses 6 through 11. When we get that glorious statement of how Paul shows and reveals Jesus Christ. And so Paul helps us understand the kind of life that's worthy of the gospel is one that promotes unity in the church as Christ did and that seeks the interests of others as Christ humbled himself for our benefit, took on the form of man for our and died for our sins. This is in keeping with the good news about the one whose life is a humble life of love and consistently sought the interest of others. And so one of the things then that Paul helps us understand here is that not only then do we get a sense of living according to the gospel in a worthy manner that understands the word of God, the character of God, that that is what Paul is expecting that these Philippians would live by. But he tells us that in doing so, there's also ways in which then we are able to guard that unity. And he starts it when he picks it up, excuse me, in verse 27 at the end where he says, I come and I see I'm sorry, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so one of the ways then that he helps them understand that how do I maintain this character, this way in which I can then live out a life worthy of the gospel, it has to deal that you are standing firm in one spirit. What does he mean, standing firm in one spirit? Well, the image that he's speaking about, he moves to a military term. That standing firm has to deal with an army or has to deal with a formation where soldiers are literally toe-to-toe, -to -toe, so to speak, or arm-to-arm. -arm. They're locked in by their shields so that no one can penetrate inside. Their firmness, if you've ever seen the movies of the gladiators or the war, the old-time Roman soldiers, part of the strength of their formation was that they had to create this impenetrable wall where everyone had to hold their position. And their shields together would form a wall that no enemy could penetrate. That way they could advance with a strike and then 
cover themselves and this wall would protect them. Paul says, I need you to stand firm in one faith. Stand firm in one spirit. And so Paul is encouraging them that in order to defeat that which is attacking you from the outside, that which would come in and destroy your unity, you all have to come together as one and stand in the midst of trying and terrible times. He says, with one spirit, and he's giving the idea that there be no division, that by their faith, they are able to come together, no matter the outside, and pull together in order to make this firm stance against any advancement towards them. He wants them to contend for the face of as if they were one man totally committed to one goal, not wishy-washy, not being able to divide themselves um, amongst their own squabblings or their own interests, but that they lay their interests aside that they may be one in the defense of the gospel and of their faith. So how does he keep this divisions then in standing firm from going any further. That next word, striving side by side. So just like I said, the, the defensive stand is that they would block an enemy from coming in. But the striving side by side is a very different picture. Paul now moves to an athletic picture. Striving side by side is one of athleticism of the Olympic Games where a team is at work and you need everyone to participate. Now, one of the team sports that I think demonstrates this sense of us not working against one another, but the necessity that not only do we work together, but we rejoice when everyone is doing their best. I don't want in this event, I don't want someone to not do better than me. I want everyone to do their best. And if you're familiar with the track and field world, we're talking about, I'm talking about relays. My sons, once again, had opportunities to play sports in high school. And one of the most fascinating events that I always enjoyed watching was their, re their relay races. Because in a relay race, everybody is looking and you want any of your teammates to outperform you. The better they perform, the better you do as a team. If one fails, you all fail. So the goal isn't to try to make someone feel bad. You work as a team so that as each one is better, the whole team moves forward. You cheer one another on. You're together with it. That's what Paul is giving the image of striving side by side, struggling so that together we conquer and we overcome anything again that would try to divide us. The Philippians' conduct was in a manner 
that was worthy of the gospel and they needed to be reminded that they were still contending in a unified manner for the faith of the gospel. And as they're striving for that, there's another thing that Paul then brings to their mind. That striving together, side by side, that they also had to then, in verse 28, not be frightened in anything by your opponents. There's something that happens when we come into contact with those that, things that can threaten us. They can stop us in our tracks. They, they can cause us to become immobile. They can cause us to turn on one another. The frightening here that he talks about is, is, is essentially like a deer in a headlights or a deer or a bird that just scatters when something happens. And Paul is saying, do not and not be frightened by anything by your opponents. One of the things that we see here is that you are going to have opponents. And Paul says, we are not to be frightened by these opponents. Who are they? Well, in Timothy, Paul refers to those opponents as the man of lawlessness, who will oppose and exalt himself over everything. In 2 Thessalonians, it's Satan who's also referred to as the one who opposes Christians in their efforts and maintain a good testimony. Galatians, Paul says, it's even our flesh that wars against us. Family and friends, it could be us that somehow turn to be our opponents. And Paul is saying that we have to be able to confront our opponents, not with fear, but with trust and faith. And so today, one of the things we want to look at and ask, what frightens you? What is it that makes you fearful and that would actually stop coming together, stop being part of the family? Things that would frighten you to bear your testimony of who Christ is. And Paul is talking about things that threaten the gospel. There's things that frighten us as far as material goods, as advancements in work. But what Paul here is saying, it's the gospel. It's the church. What frightens us about what's happening to the spread of the gospel about the unity of the gospel in our, in our church and in our lives. And he's saying, do not let your opponents be terrorized by that. Come together so that strength is made through our numbers so that we continue moving the gospel forward. We cannot let opponents oppose us nor divide us. And so Paul comes down and he says, in addition to not being frightened in anything by your opponents, he says, God has done something for us. Not only has he allowed for this gospel and this faith to go through, but he says it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your 
salvation. The fact that we are standing before, the fact that we go before and we're bold to proclaim a gospel that we don't back down with, that we don't, we're not rude, but we believe the credibility and the faithfulness and the truthfulness that this is the answer. And so with boldness, we stand forward and in doing so, God gives us a promise that says it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, those of your opponents, but for you of your salvation. Sometimes why we stay in fear is because we don't move forward in faith. You see, as we move forward in faith, there's something going on in the spirit world that God is doing that we can't see. He just said it is a sign of destruction for your opponents. Now, they may never tell you that, but you won't know if you don't go. Trust the truths of God, and we go forward and watch what God will do with our faithfulness, even as small as it may be, but we stand on that faith. And then he gives us this gift, and it's remarkable. He says, for you have been granted, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, the wording, it has been granted, that's a word that we get gift from. So Paul is saying it has been gifted to you not only to believe. Faith has been gifted to you. We know that. It is a gift from God as grace is. It's a gift. But suffering? That's probably not the one that everybody raises their hand for. Would you like a gift? Oh, yeah. I want suffering, more suffering. Where's the lottery for suffering? But it's a truth. To be counted worthy of the suffering of a disciple. Jesus says, <clears throat> a disciple is not above his master. If they do this to me, then what will they also do to you? We've been called to suffer, and the scriptures are replete with the apostles and their suffering. Paul is writing. In fact, the example that we move into in, chapter, in verse 30 says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul himself is an example that he's encouraging them to be courageous to suffer for the cause of Christ because it's worth it and because of the immeasurable price that Christ suffered for us, it is the smallest token 
that we would be so honored as to be able to likewise suffer for the causes of Christ, for the kingdom to be known as a citizen. What is, what do we honor our brave soldiers, our men and women who serve in armed forces, our first responder, all of them, why, why are they so notably honored? Because they risk their lives, they suffer for the good of others. Friends, we are soldiers in the army of God. We are there in order to push forward a kingdom at all costs. And the greatest honor that we can know is like the apostles, that we were being counted worthy of suffering, not for sinfulness, but for the causes of Christ. And that would be for the unity, as Paul is bringing out. I suffer for the unity that defines us as citizens of the kingdom. Well, Paul moves. He says, like, these are the areas that unity involves standing against the opponents that come against you. But then there's another area that we have to understand. And this one, this one gets pretty much in a lot of things that, that we find ourselves involved with. And that's standing for the unity that's happening from divisions inside. See, so far we've been dealing with those who would come from the outside questioning the gospel, trying to split up, trying to persecute, trying to do things to us as a church and individually. But what about those on the inside that are also trying to do certain things or, as we said before, have divisions and things that are going on? And so for those taking notes, the second point is stand united against inside division. We're stand united against inside division. And that's going to come out of chapter 2. Chapter 2, and we're going to read just first verses 1 through 4. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Church, if we are going to maintain the unity then we have to stand united against inside divisions. And what Paul starts this continuation with, when we see that, so if, that's another way of saying therefore, it's continuing from the last one. So if the evidences that we have seen and the things that we understand from how God is protecting us by us striving together, by being worthy of the gospel um, in the way and the manner of our lives, then he brings to their attention this first part where he begins by explaining and encouraging them 
why they should be so willing to see themselves in, as, as, as a unit um, in unity rather than side against one another trying to protect themselves. And he starts it with this fourfold, really, presentation of all the things they have to be thankful for. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, since the Philippians were suffering, the idea of encouragement through comfort is perhaps what Paul's intending here. They had a comfort in Christ that they knew and that because they had seen Paul suffer, they also understood what it would mean to go through and be comforted by Christ. As I said before, one of the things that Paul was able to demonstrate was his willingness to care for others in the midst of his suffering. And we learn why Paul could do that, because he, he, he was able to understand the sufficiency of God's grace, the comfort of Christ. And so he says, if there's any encouragement, and just so that you know, he's not questioning it. So when you hear this, if there is any um, if there is any encouragement, if there is any comfort of love. That isn't a doubtful. It's another way of saying since. Since you understand the love and encouragement of Christ, since you've been comforted by love, since you've participated in the Spirit, then he's going to call on them to do something. And so he explains to them, he identifies the comfort that's provided by love the encouragement in Christ, the fellowship in the spirit that they've all experienced. He appeals to their common experience of being formed on the grounds of their faith. They've experienced this koinonia of the spirit. And Paul has witnessed it and he brings it back to their memories. He helps them be reminded that it's the spirit who has strengthened them to love each other, to have courage to seek the interests of others, and generally to do the will of God. It's the Spirit. And so he knows that and he brings that to his attention. And then he says, upon their own part, if there is any affection of mercy, this doesn't have to deal with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as he's just laid out, but this has to do with themselves their ability to know the mercies and the affections of one another. Church, we understand that. Many of us, if not all of us, have been able to say that has been our experience. Notice what Paul is doing before he makes his call for unity. He strikes them on the things they all have experienced. He works from their positions of commonality and strength so that when the difficult request comes, they have something to draw from. And in this case, they have God and they have one another. And so then he says, this commandment to be in unity, he says, complete my joy. When Paul says complete my joy, he's giving them the understanding of what it means to be filled with joy. He's asking them not that Paul is empty, 
But what, and, and this church is one of Paul's, this is Paul's favorite church. This is his most loving, most um, uh, devoted relationship he has with the church, is this Philippian church. But what he's saying is, in hearing, is, is if we get into, the, uh, into this letter later, but we'll know that there's a, a faction that's going on in the church between two women. And that's causing division in the church. And, and what Paul is trying to lean on is saying that I am exhorting you to unity, to put these things to the side and come together based off your strengths and your love. And would you fill the joy that I have so that all that's on my mind is that you are standing as one going forward. To Paul, that's the answer to the joy they desire to serve him with, is to be one. And folks, we may understand a good deal of that. It's hard to be one when there is friction. In churches today, we have a lack of sometimes cooperation and that disturbs joy. When there's criticism, dissatisfaction, grumbling, murmurs, cliques and oppositions, and a host of other divisive negatives, it's hard to be joyful. It challenges our joyfulness. We are to worship, plan, organize and program all to serve at the joy of Christ. But the only way we can do that is if we are like-minded, have the same love, be on one accord, and to be of one mind. Jesus says, these things I have spoken unto you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy might be full. Paul is arguing for a unity in diversity as he did in Corinthians. If you get a chance, 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, 16, we see this idea of living in harmony, the different parts that all have to come together in order to be harmoniously active. And what Paul is focusing on is their attitude. He's saying, focus on what they have in common in Christ and having this same love and being in full accord with one another and having one mind. He's not saying that they all have to agree on a particular thing, but have this mind as he will get to later that was also in Christ Jesus. We share the mind of Christ. And we're to revert back to those things that keep us as one off of what we do agree with, what we do know to have commonality with. That's our strength, and we have to continue to draw upon that. But he says the way that we're able to do that, this is kind of like a paradox. One of the ways that I get unity 
to me that I get this joy for me is by doing for you. Joy that comes from the Spirit comes as the Spirit flows through you to others. And Paul brings that out when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This word selfish ambition and conceit, that's a, that's a dirty word. It literally has to do with all the ugliness of our self-absorbed insides that we want to do strictly for ourselves. Nothing is more absolutely opposed to unity and being one in spirit and purpose than selfishness and seeking one's own interests. The two attitudes, unity and selfishness, can't coexist. They're mutually exclusive. One has to give way to the other. And Paul says, in light of encouragement in Christ, love from God and fellowship with the Spirit, that there must be no selfish ambition among the Philippians. Because such an attitude is not and is totally inconsistent with Christ. And the image that Paul brings up on this is an image that he goes on to express in the most extraordinary ways. And I, I want to sideline there because what Paul says is the model of humility. The verses are a little bit out of, but it kind of goes back to that next one. But in verses 6, and five, I'm sorry, through 11, Paul puts forth the model of humility that we're supposed to have. In your scripture, it reads, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Friends, that's what's known as Christ's humiliation. That's God being obedient, Jesus, to the point of death. He didn't stop halfway. He didn't rethink the plan, might there be a better way as the time came? He fulfilled what was asked and what was expected of him. Had he not died on the cross, there would be no salvation for man. The cross was the goal of his incarnation. Having wiped out the requirements of the law that was against us, which was contrary to us. Jesus nailed it on the cross, taking it away from us. 
And with him, the judgments of the law against us was nailed on that cross. It's the focal point of God's dealing with us, the cross. It's where our redemption from sin was worked out by him shedding his blood to pay the price once and for all. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. The cross is a bloody issue with which to deal. It's offensive to many people. But to us and for those who are being saved, it is the treasure of life. Only on the cross are our sins answered for and are we saved. And friends, there may be some of you that have not accepted that penalty pay for your sins. I pray that as you have heard the half of the story where Jesus was nailed to the cross, that something in your heart is asking, do I know this Christ? Because the second part of what Paul goes into is extraordinary. Jesus just didn't die. He continues in verse 9. Therefore, God has exalted, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That's Christ's exaltation. He humbled himself and gave the model that we should be to give of ourselves for another. He had no sin, but he went to the cross for our sin. And God has made him above every name. And this is the good word because it says his name is above every name. And at his name, every knee shall bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. That's a shorthand way of saying humans, angels, everybody and everything will bow to Jesus Christ because his name is above every name. Either you will bow in humble submission and repentance, saying, Lord, please take me, as he so graciously desires to do, or you will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul brings this to their attention and said, if Jesus, if your citizenship to this Jesus If he did this, what are you holding on to? What are you proud of that you can't give? That the God of the universe put on man, put on human flesh to be man, his incarnation. And Paul uses that to say in his humble and low state, God has exalted him. And he gives us a model for us to follow. 
Paul doesn't want us to seek our own interests. He wants us to pursue others' interests. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It means that we need to take a good look at the needs and the interests of others so that we can do something about it. That's what citizens do. That's what he's calling us to do. And friends, today there's much to divide us. Take inventory this week. How's your relationship with the Lord? And take time to think seriously about the needs and the interests of another Christian. Are we doing what we need to do to make sure that my brothers and my sisters, that we are standing arm in arm, that we are that front line that has shields locked, that we're striving for one another? Or are we letting the world penetrate in and get into the ranks and start wreaking havoc on all of our members? God is calling us to fight for one another for the glory of the faith of Christ. And friends, I pray that as we have been doing in family, as we have been doing, I pray that we would continue to fight that fight. And I pray that we would find encouragement from Christ and from Paul giving us words to help fortify us in our fight together. We are not the enemy. We are the citizens of the kingdom. And we need to start coming together and recognizing that which unites us so that we can push out the very things that try to divide us. Amen. Let's go before the Lord.